It's, uh, it's December 31st, 2023, if you didn't know. Um, so, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Um, thank you. <laughs> but maybe if you're like me, you're wondering how happy is it really going to be, right? I mean, we, we're, we're, we're probably not going into the most peaceful time in our country and in our world. Uh, it hasn't been that. Um, and, and sadly, the, the problem of division, it's not, it's not only a, an issue in the secular world. Um, Christians today are divided over lots of things and, 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 and many non-ultimate things, uh, you know, from politics to pandemics or whatever it is. Um, we're divided. And, and, and I fear that we risk losing sight of the bigger picture, the bigger calling that God is calling us to um, if we're too too concerned about being right and not concerned enough about being redemptive. We need to be right about ultimate things. Absolutely, that is fundamental. But when it comes to less consequential matters, I'm concerned that we might lose people for the sake of winning an argument. And um, that's a problem. But here's the thing. I don't want to focus on the negative this morning. Because here's the other thing. I, I want us to see these times through a different lens. I want us to see them as an opportunity. Because for the church, that's exactly what this time is. It's an opportunity. You know, back when I was practicing law, we used to say that our clients have problems and we have prospects. Um, it's, it's sort of the same here. Our world has problems right now. Even our country has problems. But we have an opportunity. In this, we have an opportunity to to really show something special to the world in this time of hostility and division because we have the one thing, the only thing that can unify all people. We have the gospel. We have the truth of Jesus. So on the eve of a new year that is pregnant with the promise of discord, I believe the church is perfectly positioned to glorify God through our unity, and this body especially. So today I want to look at why that's the case. I want to look at, at godly unity. Okay, I want us to look at it together. We're going to look specifically at, at, at Jesus' high uh, priestly prayer, which is in uh, the book of John, chapter 17. And we're going to see what he tells us about the unity of believers. And, and, and we're going to focus specifically on verses 17, 20 to 23, uh, if you want to turn there. <clears throat> and in that, I'm going to read them here for you in a second, but... In that, we're going to see three things. We're going to see what godly unity is, why we're called to it, and how we go about achieving it, okay? So what is godly unity? Why is it so important? Why are we called to it? And how do we go about achieving it? And ultimately, what we're going to find is that godly unity is founded on humility and service or selflessness, okay? Before we launch into that, I'm gonna, I want to read the, read the, uh, the um, verses to you this, right now. I need to put my glasses on because I'm now officially old. Um, but just listen to these words, and then, and then we'll pray together. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. 
I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, we come before you right now. So grateful for your word. So grateful for the opportunity not just to know about it, Lord, but to be transformed by it. Lord, I pray this morning that you would speak. I pray that your spirit would move among us. I pray, Lord, that um, your truth would be known. And Lord, that you would draw us together around uh, this, beautiful, this beautiful prayer, Jesus, um, that we may learn to walk as you walk. So bless our time this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so before we begin exploring Jesus' specific call uh, for unity among believers, uh, I want to set the stage a little bit um, by some other verses that are in, in John 17. This, this is such a beautiful chapter. It's this deeply intimate view into the Trinity as Jesus prays to the Father. And he prays first for himself, then he prays for his apostles, and finally he prays uh, for all believers, okay? I'm not going to go through, obviously, the entire prayer. That would be a sermon series. But I do want to briefly focus on a few verses that I think provide a foundation for what we're going to look at today. So Jesus opens a prayer with, with really, it's like a statement of, of what his mission has been on earth, the purpose and the result of his incarnation. He says in verses 1 through 3, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, just as you gave him authority over all mankind. So that all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus sets the stage with the most important fundamental truth known to mankind. That we were created for eternal life with him. But that eternal life is made possible only through knowledge of the Father and faith in the Son. See, it's on this foundational truth that everything else depends. It's our very reason for being. Ultimately, we are to have unity with God. Jesus then prays for his apostles, uh, who, who he's revealed this truth to, and he, and he petitions the Father for, for three things. Their protection, their sanctification, and their unity. Okay? Let's look at verse 11, for instance. He says... I'm no longer going to be in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, so that they may be one, just as we are. The word there that's translated keep, uh, it really means to attend carefully to, or to guard. In other words, it offers this sense of protection. And the word name there, it's, it's not just a, a reference to an identity as sometimes we might think of names. It covers everything that a person is, one's character, one's intellect, one's emotions, and so forth. It's, it's the essence, the fullness of who one is. And so here it's talking about the fullness of God. Jesus is asking the Father to engage the fullness of his power and sovereignty in protecting the apostles from the demonic spiritual onslaught that they were definitely going to face as they tried to carry out their mission, as they did carry out their mission. We see this request repeated in verse 17, 15, where Jesus specifically asks that the Father keep them away from the evil one because he knows what Satan's up to. In verses 17, 11, we also see this theme of unity surface here. He says, so that they may be one just as we are. That conjunction, 
uh, hina in the Greek. It's, it says so that. Uh, it has a, a couple of different functions, but here, here I believe it's indicating purpose. Purpose being that, that, um, that through the protection and the, the, through the protection and the sanctification, we are purposed for a unity. See, I think Jesus is pray, playing the, praying that believers would remain continually united uh, and that division is one of Satan's biggest, powerful, most powerful tools. He knows this. So he's empowering us to be united. We're going to come back to unity in, in greater detail in a moment, but I want to show you, uh, share with you one other thing. In verse 17, 17, he asks the Father to sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify here means to set apart, but more particularly, to set apart for a sacred purpose. This is what we're called to. And they're sanctified by truth, which is the word of God. The word of God. But I want you to see here, sanctification by truth is, is not just propositional. It's, it's not just referring to theological and doctrinal, correct theological and doctrinal belief. That's very important. It absolutely must be there. But it's also personal. That is, it's transformational. It should lead to transformation of the person. When we pick up the scriptures, we shouldn't just know the scriptures. We should be transformed by them. And this is what he's praying for. He's praying that the apostles would be set apart from the sin, corrupt values, and misplaced objectives of the world, both in their understanding of the word and in their embodiment of the word. So against this sort of backdrop, okay, of protection and sanctification, we are, I want us to now come to the verses we're looking at today, and we're going to look at uh, verse 17, 20 first. <clears throat> he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word, okay? I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word. So right off the bat, we see that Jesus isn't just, Jesus isn't just praying for the apostles, He's praying for all believers. What does that mean? Well, if you're a believer like I'm a believer, Jesus was praying for you. He's praying for me. That's, that's a pretty remarkable thing when you think about it. I mean, let me ask you a question. When somebody comes up to you and says, you know, um, were your ears burning? Because we were just talking about you. What's your response to that? Are you like, well, that's nice. I don't really care, but no, that's not really the way we, we, we act. We want to know what you had to say. When, when people are talking about us, we want to know the content of those discussions. So when one member of the Godhead is talking to the other member of the Godhead about you and me, don't you want to know what he's saying? I, I know I do. And it's remarkable. See, as he is, as with the apostles, we see Jesus is asking for our protection and sanctification. But we also see one other thing when we look at this. He's, he's, he's returning with great emphasis to this, this theme of unity. It's clearly significant to, him, significant to him, and it should be for us too. So the first question we need to answer is, what is this unity? What is this unity that Jesus is praying for? So now, praying now for all believers, Jesus asks for protection that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Again, we see this, this conjunction that, that indicates purpose. Just as it was with the, with the apostles, the purpose of Jesus' request is for unity among believers. Note again in, in verse 22, this incredible statement that Jesus says. He says, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. 
Jesus is calling here for a profound oneness, a profound oneness that's only possible among believers. It's not like anything that the world defines as unity. We hear all kinds of calls for unity today in our world. But when they're measured against God's design for unity, they, they ring hollow. Let me just give you an example of, of one I recently heard. Tom Hanks was being interviewed for a movie he's got coming out. I think it's called Moonwalkers. And the, interv- the, uh, the person interviewing him asked him this question, said, do you think that by taking another mission to the moon, we could unite our divided world? And this was Tom's response. He said, all we really need is enough of us to work together and we can truly change the world. Right now, it seems as though not enough of us can work together. But let's find an example when that happens. And I'm sorry, but going back to the moon is that example writ large. Now look, you know, I love Tom Hanks. I think he's an exceptional actor. I think he's probably a really, really good guy. But to be honest, I don't think a mission sending people to the moon is going to bring about world peace. Right? It might depend on who we send to the moon. I don't know. But look, the world, and and even our nation, it was a fractured pace back in 1969. I mean, we came together for a mission. It was amazing. Great, great accomplishment. I'm not not uh, diminishing the accomplishment, but but I don't think any of us would suggest that it, 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 it resulted in some form of lasting national solidarity. See, the problem with Tom's answer is that it's grounded in human resolve, human effort. And all we have to do is look at history to know that humanity cannot achieve true unity on its own. The best we're probably going to achieve is some form of uniformity. But that's very different, brothers and sisters. That's very different from the unity that God calls us to, the unity that Jesus makes possible. So again, what is this godly unity? Well, Jesus' answer to that question kind of of blew my mind. Maybe it would blow your mind too. The answer is it's the unity that exists in God himself. The unity of the Trinity. Three times Jesus points to a Trinitarian formula for unity. In verse 21, he calls for us to be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Again, in verse 22, he speaks of the glory given to him and passed on to his believers, that they may be one, just as we are one. And in verse 23, he adds, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Perfected. In unity. The word perfected, it can also be translated complete, as in with nothing lacking. It's also in the perfect tense, which tells us something. That it's something that, that once accomplished has this ongoing perpetual result. The framework Jesus calls for is the complete, perfect, ongoing, perpetual unity of the Godhead. That's what he's calling us into. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, gave what I think is just a very moving portrait of the Trinitarian relationship. Listen to what he writes. The life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually giving self-love. When we delight and serve someone else, we enter into a dynamic uh, orbit around him or her. We center on the interests and desires of the other. That creates a dance, particularly if there are three persons, each of whom moves around the other two. 
And so it is, the Bible tells us. Each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers, and rejoices in the others. And that creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. That's a pretty amazing portrait of unity, isn't it? You know what's more amazing? God wants us in that same picture. He's calling us into it. That raises another question, at least for me, uh, which is why? Why is unity so important to God's plan? Let's look at that next. And, and what we're going to find is the answer to this question is actually pretty straightforward. It's right here in the text. Look at verse 17, 21. It says that they may, they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. There we have our, our purpose clause surfacing again, right? Showing us that the purpose of the unity that Jesus prays for is to have the world believe that he has been sent by God so that the world may believe you have sent me. That he is the sent Savior, the sent Messiah, the one who sent, who's been sent to redeem us all. In other words, our unity is an expression of the gospel. That's what he's saying. It's our witness to the world. And that witness is of God's plan for salvation through his son. Warren Wearsby put it this way, one of the things that most impresses the world is the way Christians love each other and live together in harmony. It is this witness that our Lord wants in the world that, thou, that, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The lost world cannot see God, but they can see Christians. And what they see in us is what they will believe about God. If they see love and unity, they will believe that God is love. If they see hatred and division, they will reject the message of the gospel. It's a pretty powerful statement. There's still, however, even more to this amazing testimony he gives about unity. Look, look at what he adds in verse 17, 23. He says, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Think about that for a second. And love them even as you love me. Not only does our, our unity testify to the sending of the Savior, it testifies about God's love for his believers. I mean, again, think about what Jesus is saying here. The Father loves you and me as believers as much as he loves his own son. We're his creation. Jesus is his son Yet the Father loves us just as much. We're pretty much hopeless sinners. Time and again, we affront him with our behaviors or our attitudes or our actions. Jesus is a sinless, perfect, God-honoring person in all his ways. Yet the Father loves us just as much. We take and take and take from the Father while Jesus gives and gives and gives to the Father. Yet the Father loves us just as much. I mean, I could probably go on all afternoon with a litany of reasons why the Father ought not to love us at all, never mind as much as his Son, but that wouldn't change a thing. God loves us. Paul probably put it best when he said in Romans 8, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, 
nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is Christ Jesus, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Here's a question we need to ask ourselves, though. Is the world seeing this love in us? Is it seeing this love in our words to other believers? Is it seeing this love in how we serve others? Is it seeing this love in our sacrifices on behalf of our brothers and sisters? See, if we're not embracing godly unity, the world's not seeing in us the love of the Father. And if it can't see his love, how is is it going to come to him? How are they going to follow him? So, so we see now why, the why, and so we've also now looked at what, what, what godly unity is, and we've seen why we should pursue it. It's important to God's redemptive plan, and it's founded on him. The case is pretty compelling, but by now you may be saying to yourself, yeah, godly unity is good and necessary, I agree with that, but how on earth do I go about it? It's pretty hard. It can be. We're sinners. We're sheep. Sheep bite. It doesn't always work out very well. Luckily, the Bible helps us. God has helped us. See, the Bible's replete with instruction on how to live in godly unity with one another. Just look at the beautiful picture of the church in Acts 4.32. It says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. It's a beautiful unity born out of sharing that we see there. But the Bible also instructs that in several places that we are to strive to be of one mind and one purpose. Note what Paul tells the Corinthian church. He says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. The same mind and in the same judgment. Paul essentially here is calling for the church to be perfected in unity, just as Jesus prayed for. The Bible also tells us that believers are to strive for peace, resist division, and seek restoration when fractures happen. Note what Paul says to the Colossians. He says, So as those of you who have been chosen above God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond, the perfect bond of unity. So see, we, see, we see the Bible has, has a lot to say about unity. It's full of instruction about unity. We can't cover it all here today. But I do want to give you two practical things, two practical foundations that I think are key to godly oneness. And we're going to find both of these in Paul's letter to the Philippians. There Paul calls on the church in Philippians 2.2 to make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, and intent on one purpose. His call there to unity. But then he goes on to instruct them in verses 3 and 4 with this. He says, do nothing from selflessness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. 
do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your interests, but look out for the interests of others. In there we see these two foundations of godly unity. It is humility and service, serving one another, serving others. Or put another way, it is other-centeredness. Not self-centeredness, but other-centeredness. Let's look at these really quickly, beginning with humility. Pride is the number one enemy of humility, largely because it's basically what? An excessive focus on self. It's an excessive focus on self. Pride leads us to, to, to make it all about us. It's all about my rights or how I've been wronged. It's all about my interests and not really the interests of the other. It's all about my self-justification rather than me simply owning that I did something wrong. It's basically me, 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 me. Now, if the model for our unity is the Trinity, we need to ask ourselves something. Do we see this self-centered pride in the Godhead? It's not a rhetorical question, do we? No, absolutely not. No member of the Godhead seeks to promote himself over the others. None pulls rank. None asserts his rights. None is envious of the others. But humility, on the other hand, it's just the opposite. It's my rights don't matter. My interests don't matter. My ego and reputation doesn't matter. And this we see in the Trinity in spades. See, in the Godhead, none seeks to elevate himself over the others. It's just the opposite. Each seeks to elevate and glorify the other. That's how we love one another. Returning to Philippians, Paul reminds us uh, that Jesus provided the ultimate example of this. He says in, in verses 5 through 8, which I know you're all familiar with, he says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which, also, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is a lot of theology in there, but this is what I want you to see. That to demonstrate absolute humility, Jesus emptied himself of glory. He didn't have to empty himself of anything to be perfectly humble. He is perfectly humble. But he did so. We, on the other hand, have pride, unfortunately, as our default. So just as Jesus showed us by example, we need to empty ourselves of any shred of, shred of self-glory that we may have. We need to make room for humility in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives. We have to ask ourselves this question at every turn. Is my motivation my glory? Or is my motivation God's glory? Is my motivation my glory or God's glory? I pretty much guarantee, because I did this and it wasn't fun, but I can always guarantee that if you ask yourself that question honestly, you're not always going to like what you see. In fact, a lot of times you may not. But I also guarantee you this, that if you pursue a change in that response, if you intentionally seek to take the light off of you and put it on God and put it on others, you're going to love who you become. You're going to love it. 
Furthermore, it's going to surface in you other characteristics of the Trinity that lead to this divine unity, selflessness, okay, or service or other-centeredness. Recall in his account on the Trinitarian relationship, Tim Keller said, each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. That other-centeredness is the foundation of, of unity. Not only do the, the members of the Godhead seek to glorify uh, each other, they also seek to serve the others. They're profoundly other-centered, and so should we be. But what does that look like? What does that look like in the life of a believer? Here's the good news. In one sense, I would say, just look around. Because examples abound. This is the beautiful thing. This is the beautiful thing about the church. Eight believers choose to come together, put a lot of things aside so they can help form an employment ministry to reach people. Dozens of brothers and sisters choose to come out here on Christmas morning to feed thousands of meals to the homeless. Teams choose to set aside their time and resources and fly halfway across the world to minister to the lost and needy in a slum in Nairobi or in rural South Africa or Ethiopia. Hundreds of people choose to pour into the lives of others right here at Burke in the youth ministry in the women's ministry, in the men's ministry. If you're part of that, thank you. You see, other-centeredness is happening all around us. The question we have to ask is, are we part of it? Because it's so powerful. And why is this selflessness so powerful? Well, I'm going to go back to what Hannah said, basically, because it's countercultural. It is the opposite of what people expect from the world. Going back to Paul's letter uh, to the Philippians, the, the apostle says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, lights in the world. You know, and this Paul kind of returns us to the point of our humility and, our, and our, our selflessness and ultimately our unity, which again is to be witness. It all comes back to missions. Uh, but no, it does. It comes back to being witnesses. We're to be lights in a crooked and perverse world. Let me ask you a question. What happens when you light a candle in a very dark place? It lights up the room. Thank you very much. It wasn't a terribly hard question, but think about it. One little bitty flame can light up a dark room. It doesn't take megawatts of energy to completely overwhelm the darkness. I want to suggest to you that in the same way, small acts of love and unity for one another, when we cast those against a backdrop of hatred and division that we see in our world, Man, they're going to stand out like bright stars, bright stars that glorify God. You know, in his letter to the Galatians, Paul writes, So then, while we have opportunity, let's do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. While we have opportunity, he says, well, that time is now. That opportunity is right before us whether we help with an employment ministry, join a short-term missions team, volunteer with the Burke ministry, 
if we take a step, we further God's plan. So as we step into New Year tomorrow, into the New Year, let's do it together. Let's be a church that's united for Christ, humble in all our ways, and totally focused on others. I think you'd agree the world's a pretty shocking place these days. I think it's time to shock it back. Wouldn't you agree? Let's pray. Father God, we pray that your word, as we know you promised us, will never, ever come back empty. We pray you'd fill us by the power of your Holy Spirit this very day to go out and be lights in the world, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would change the course of our nation through your believers in 2024, that we would be lights unified together, Lord, and just pictures of hope in a world that desperately needs it. We thank you, God, for the opportunity to serve you. We love you. We honor you. And may we always glorify your name. And we lift this up in your son's precious name. Amen.